Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this last week or so has been warning me uh, about Memorial Day weekend here at ZPC and uh, how it will appear to be almost a ghost town, that everyone will be at the race or at the lake or, or wishing that they were at the race or the lake or at least wondering what race and what lake it is that people keep talking about. But, uh, but I'm impressed uh, with those of you who are here this morning, and it is good for us to gather uh, together today. This past week has been a busy week for us at ZPC. We had a, a staff retreat over at um, uh, Fort Ben, is that what it's called? Fort Ben uh, Harrison, Benjamin Harrison, uh, which is just a beautiful place. And uh, we were there Tuesday and Wednesday. And I just want to say uh, from up here, what a great staff uh, we have here at ZPC, just full of uh, good people with uh, good energy, and it was a, a chance for us to kind of laugh and, and play some games, and uh, it was just a, just a great time for us to kind of gather together and get to, get to know each other uh, better. And so I, I consider myself uh, very blessed uh, to be a part of the staff here at ZPC. Well, we continue right now our series called Wake from uh, Easter to Pentecost. And Pentecost is in how many weeks? Two weeks. All right, two weeks. June 8th is Pentecost Sunday. And so do you know what, what color is traditionally worn on Pentecost Sunday? Wow, you did better at that. Okay, red. All right, and some of you are already wearing red now, and so uh, I appreciate that. Um, but let's remember that here in a couple of weeks. Let's, uh, let's try to wear some red if we can as a reminder of the flames of the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. But before we get there, two weeks before that, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And so I encourage you to hear now these words from Luke. Luke writes, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way 
as you saw him go into heaven. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, on this beautiful Sunday morning, we come to you reflecting on the ascension and what that means for us in our lives today. It seems something outlandish, God, something beyond our imaginations. And yet we know it is there for a reason. And so I pray, O God, that you would help to open up our eyes to that this morning. And we do pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth And the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So it's been 40 days, Luke says, that the disciples have been experiencing the risen Savior. And if you've been traveling with us over these last several weeks, you will remember that again and again we, we see the disciples and how they react. There are, are times when they are surprised. There are times when they are frightened. Times when they are in awe. Times when they are excited and, and jumping out of a boat in order to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. It has been a, a discombobulated time, if you will. But each time that they see him, Surely they are getting more and more excited, more and more confident that Jesus really has been raised from the dead. That this is not just a figment of their grieved minds, but that he really is alive. And so finally, after 40 days, we are told, they finally blurt out the question, is this the time? when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, I have a feeling that what's been going on is that they've been wondering this question for all of the time that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In fact, if you will recall, there are many times throughout Jesus's life before he was raised from the dead that they kept asking him this question. They kept wondering, when is it that you are going to restore the kingdom? When are we going to get to ride behind you and march into Jerusalem and take over from the Romans? When is it going to happen? When are we going to get to lead? And so throughout these 40 days, surely they're thinking, well, if Jesus is raised from the dead, this must be the time. This is going to be good stuff. But up until now, they have held off. It's kind of like like when someone, a friend of yours invites you over perhaps or says, hey, let's go have dinner. I have some news for you. And you, you go and you're having the dinner, but your friend keeps not telling you what the news is. And so you, you keep wondering and you're trying to be polite. And so you, you keep having this you know, nice little chatter about this and that until finally at some point you can't wait any longer. The dessert is on the way. And so you finally blurt out, when's it going to happen? What's happening? Tell me the news. And I kind of think that's what's happening here, that that finally they've been patient for 40 days and anyone who's followed the disciples knows that patience is not one of their virtues. And so finally, finally they erupt. Okay, is it it now? Is it today even? Jesus, as he has always done when they have asked this question, 
says what? It's not yours to know. And so surely as they begin to say that, they just, they're rolling their eyes. They're thinking, are you kidding me? This has got to be the time. What do you mean we don't know? What do you mean you can't tell us? And so just as they're beginning to think about that and they're, they're, they're all of a sudden realizing that this great notion they have that perhaps it's today when they will ride into Jerusalem and take over, all of a sudden then there is this slight change of framework. And Jesus doesn't go on as he used to always do back when he was alive the first time. Instead, he changes things up. And he says, no, this is not for you to know. But, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will be my witness, or you will receive the power, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. All of a sudden, the disciples who were so excited about the fact that they were going to ride into Jerusalem and they're thinking it's much like when you were, if you were a little brother ever and you had your big sibling behind you and you were all big and bad and you could say anything to anybody, right? Until all of a sudden you looked around. And your older sibling was gone. And you realized, are you kidding me? This is up to me now? It kind of shuts you up. And all of a sudden, they're sitting there thinking, wait, what? Me? What are you talking about? We've been talking about you. We're going to ride behind you. And all of a sudden, now you're saying, it's up to me. And then, and then they look to their left and they say, what? It's up to him? You, you, do you know this guy? And so they're looking to the left and to the right, and they're looking inside, and all of a sudden, they look back to Jesus, and what is Jesus doing? He's going up. And so they're sitting there, and they're staring up. And they got to be thinking, I don't want to fall. Is this a joke? Is this, is this a test? And they just keep sitting there. And I can't help but thinking that a part of the reason why they keep looking up is not just because they hope that he'll come back down, but because they realize that as long as their eyes are in the clouds, then their heads can stay in the clouds. And they don't have to look down and see the reality that is all around them, which is that they are called to be the witnesses. And so there they are, Luke tells us, staring intently up into the clouds when all of a sudden two men are standing next to them. And again, they probably have no idea they're standing next to them and they don't want to take their eyes off of the ball, right? And so the, the men say, um, men of Galilee, why are you staring up? And again, you know, one of them like, I don't recognize that voice. And so they might kind of look quiet real quick, but then they just keep looking up. They don't want to take their eyes off of heaven. They don't want to deal with the reality of what Jesus has told them until finally those men say, the same Jesus whom you have seen go up is going to come down in the exact same way. And we don't know how long they kept looking. 
We don't know if it was those words that made them keep their, or put their eyes down or whether or not it was, it was the fact that their necks were getting tired or their stomachs were getting hungry. We really have no idea. All we know is that at some point, as we will discover next week, the disciples finally went to Jerusalem, which is exactly where Jesus had told them to go and to wait for the Spirit of God. Now, this is called the Ascension text. And it is kind of an odd passage. And quite honestly, especially in in Protestant churches, it's not something that we really talk about a whole lot. And and in fact, perhaps as, as kind of fascinating and odd as this passage is, is the fact that we don't talk about it all that much. I mean, every year, you know what? We have an ascension of the Lord day. Who can tell me in 2014, when is the ascension of the Lord day? Today, good try. Not today, right? Although it is when we're talking about it. It is this coming up Thursday. Okay, it's May 29th. And it's fascinating. We have Easter, we talk about that day. We have, uh, you know, we have Christmas. Everyone can tell me when that is, but we don't talk about it that much. And so I thought it was kind of interesting. There's probably lots of reasons why we don't talk about it, but there's lots of reasons as well why we should talk about it. And so the message this morning is going to be pretty, uh, pretty, I don't know, basic Really, I was really honestly thinking that most of us that are here are probably going, it's going to be hard to concentrate today. And so here's what I want us to think about, just the two kind of brief things. I want us to think about the tension of the ascension. Okay? So let's say that. The tension of the ascension. All right, good. See, the people at the race, they don't know about the tension of the ascension. See, but you do. And it is two things. There are two poles here that form the tension of the ascension. Witnessing and waiting. Witnessing and waiting. Witnessing. Now, as I've already said, the disciples by this point have to be somewhat gobsmacked that Jesus has told them that basically he is not going to lead them to Jerusalem, but rather they are called to be the ones who are witnesses of him and for him. And why does this shock them so much? Well, first of all, probably because they know better than anyone else just how weak they are. All of us know our own foibles, our own indiscretions, our own shortfalls, better than almost anybody else. Amen? And if you don't, then ask a spouse or somebody and they will help you. But most of us, most of us are pretty honest and we know our own struggles. And so as soon as Jesus says, well, actually, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to be heading up, but, but, but here's the good news. You're going to be doing it. Immediately what they know is the same things that we know, which is that surely there are things that we have done in the past. Surely there are shortfalls that we have. Surely there are times of doubt that we have. There are times of a lack of courage that we have. There are times when we have fallen short. And so as soon as, as Jesus gives them this great big task that they, not he, are going to be the ones who are witnesses 
witnessing to the kingdom of God, immediately then they begin wondering why in the world would God have us do that? Immediately, it's easy for us to figure out and to find other people who could do a much better job than we can of being a witness to something as amazing as the kingdom of God. We can always find somebody else who surely has more gifts or who is a better person and who can simply do a better job. We are always excited to have someone else do the witnessing rather than us. When I worked for Presbyterian Global Fellowship, um, one of the things that we did is I got, I got to work with a lot of different churches and just kind of check in on the churches and see how they're doing. And, and a lot of these churches, some of them were doing well, but a lot of them were struggling. And, and, and one of the things that I began to notice, I kind of began to see a pattern, which is that in most of these churches, especially those who were struggling, they were always hoping that something or someone from the outside would come in and either help them be better witnesses or even and better yet, actually do the witnessing on their behalf. That, that something from the outside could come in and help them as a church to help the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, sometimes this was a model that they wanted. They, you know, they would say, hey, we heard that this model over at the other church works really great, and they seem to be doing really well at kind of being witnesses to God. And so they, they'd say, is there any way that we can just take that model and we can kind of bring it over here and, and we can do it right here, and then we don't have to, you know, and then all of a sudden everything would change and, and it would be perfect. And others would say, well, you know what, maybe it's not a model, but we just think, we think we need another service. If we had an exciting service, then, then we think that we could be witnesses to the kingdom of God because younger people might all of a sudden start coming in. And, and well, they have the energy to do all this, so they'd be better at that anyway, so maybe it's another service. But, but more often than not, do you know what people were hoping would come from the outside in order to rescue them and help them or do it on their behalf to be witnesses to Jesus. Do you know what people most often wanted to come in from the outside to all of a sudden save them? A superstar pastor. I mean, if we can get the right pastor to come in, because here's the great thing that happens, then we don't even have to do the witness. All we have to do is just say, you know, hey, you should, maybe you want to come to Sunday sometime, and you could come here. We've got a new preacher, and you can come and listen to them, and, 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 and then, you know, if you, if you have the right preacher, then, then, maybe, then maybe that person will be a good teacher, and, and, and then you don't really have to do much of anything. You just have to invite them to come, and, 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 and there's nothing wrong with a good program, or there's nothing wrong with a good service. There's nothing wrong, per se, with a good pastor, but the problem is, is that all too often, as soon as maybe we think we might have something like that, then, then we can stop being witnesses, and all of a sudden, we easily forget that Jesus said, who is supposed to be his witnesses? You, which means we. And we are always way too easily giving up of the mantle that Jesus has given to all of us, the mission that Jesus has given to all of us. Now that may mean a lot of different things for us. That can mean, you know, perhaps you're, you're helping to lead in the church in some form or fashion. Maybe it means that you're, that you're loving uh, your neighborhood in a particular way. Maybe it means that you're serving at wherever it is that you work with integrity. It can mean a lot of different things to serve as a witness to the kingdom of God. But one thing it cannot mean is that somebody else is doing it for you. 
We were thinking about this a little bit at the, at the staff retreat. I didn't exactly phrase it like this, but it's kind of what we were talking about. I, I, I like to be as upfront as possible. And so one of the things that we talked about and, and that I talked to the staff about is how can we make sure that ZPC is not a pastor-centric church? How can we make sure that ZPC is not about what Pastor Scott does or about what Pastor Jerry does, but rather that it is Christ church? And so they had lots of great ideas. I mean, they were very happy to make sure this church is not about me, right? I mean, they were just coming left and right, and someone even said, well, maybe you could just leave, and maybe that would, you know, and I said, Scott, I don't think that's a great idea, but I mean, I'll think about it. But it was interesting, as we were talking about this, that really the reasonings that kept coming up, while there were certainly things that I could do to make sure that that didn't happen, and they were good reasons, that more of the reasons were about how do we make sure that the people who are sitting down here, all of us, are stepping up and being witnesses. Perhaps it's coming up here and, and giving a testimony or, or perhaps it's even preaching or, or perhaps it's, like I said already, leading in different ways. But by and large, the focus was not so much on let's make sure that Jerry or Scott don't ever do anything as much as let's make sure that all of us realize that we are all playing a part in what it means to fulfill the mission of God. Because the reality is that this church will never be about bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven in its fullest until all of us understand that we are witnesses for Christ. So I want you to stop right now. Stop thinking about the race. Stop thinking about the lake. And I want you to look to the person to your left and to your right. And I want you to say to them, you are a witness. It's kind of scary, isn't it? When you look at that person, you think, oh, are you kidding me? It gives us a little bit better feel of what the disciples must have been thinking. So the tension of the ascension, we have witnessing, and then we have waiting. Now, have you ever thought how weird this is, the way that Jesus, the way that God goes about this? It's not very efficient, because Jesus goes up and, and then the Holy Spirit doesn't come down for, for a while. There's this time gap. And, and I mean, if I were doing it, I would make sure that the same time that Jesus is pushing the up button on the elevator, that the Holy Spirit is pressing the down button. But for some reason, there is this time gap between the two. And I don't think that that's just happenstance. And what does Jesus tell them to do? To go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. So yes, you are called to be the witnesses, but secondly, first you have to wait. And so as I was kind of thinking about that, one of the things that that came to my mind was the passage in Isaiah. When you think about waiting and waiting upon the Lord, what, what do you think about? What passage might pop up in your head? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is a great passage. In fact, it's a passage that, uh, that we oftentimes read pastors do when they're, when they're with someone who's sick or, or ill. We, we, we come and we, we talk about that. And it's a great passage for those kinds of, uh, um, for those circumstances. But one of the things that we don't often think about is why is it that Isaiah was saying those words? And most scholars think that the reasoning why those words were being said was because the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. And, and they thought that God had left them. And they looked around and they thought, if God was really God, then we wouldn't be in the situation in which we are right now. And all they saw as they went around, as they looked around, were other gods. And they realized that they had been conquered and they were frightened. And they thought, surely God has left us. And so Isaiah is saying, wait upon the Lord, even though it feels like everything has gone awry, even though it feels like you are completely out of control, even though it feels like God is no longer in control, wait upon the Lord because he is still in control, no matter what it might look like. He is still there beside you, even when you cannot see him or feel him. And so what's going on, it seems to me, is that much like those people that Isaiah is speaking to, the disciples were told to go back, and this is a time for them to to have their faith tested. To say, do you really believe, even in this moment, that God is in control? Remember what Hebrews 11.1 says, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so there they are back in Jerusalem. They've been given this daunting task that we are to be witnesses. Jesus is gone and they have to decide, are we willing to wait in Jerusalem for the spirit of God or will we give in to despair and just flee? Because witnessing is great. But if you try and do it on your own, then you are in control and not God. And what I've begun to discover is that when churches or individuals think that we are called to witness and we're not, and and we are in control and God's not in control, then the vision that you have becomes very, very small. And you begin thinking about, well, the kingdom of earth as it is in heaven. Well, maybe that means we change this little part of of a worship service or we change this part of a church. Whereas the kingdom of God says, no, you need to think about how you can change a community. Or if you try and be a witness without really waiting and realizing God's in control, then you think, well, maybe, if, maybe I'll just try to be a little bit better. Or maybe this person could just be a little bit nicer. That's what it means. No, rather it means that all of your life begins to be centered around Christ, that everything changes, not just little things. You see, the problem if we don't hold these things in tension is that if we are only focused on witnessing then all of a sudden we're doing lots of little things, but we're missing the grand plan that God has given to this church and to you as an individual. We end up being a people of small plans. And if we only focus on waiting, then we just think, well, God's in control, so I really don't have to do much of anything, which means everyone else can do it or the pastor can just stand up there and do it for us. And so on this Sunday, and then coming up this next Thursday, 
on May 29th, I want to encourage you to wake up on that day and to ask yourselves, are you familiar with the tension of the ascension? Witnessing and waiting. And I want you to ask yourself on that day, how is it that I might be a witness in whatever way to the kingdom of God? And that in spite of all the shortfalls and the doubts and the questions and where you feel like you're not as strong as you wish you were, that there are ways, small ways and big ways that you can be a witness to who God is. But I also want to encourage you to spend some time simply waiting. It might be that you wake up five minutes earlier on Thursday and, and you, go, you go to work uh, or, or you spend those five minutes just simply waiting and saying, before I kind of start this day that makes me feel like I'm in control of everything, I'm going to just sit here and rest in the reality that God is in control. Or maybe it means before you have dinner with your family that night, because I know now you guys are not just eating in your cars, you're eating together around a gathered table, Amen. of you. And so you're there, and maybe you spend five minutes, even if it means the food is getting cold, and say, I'm going to spend five minutes just kind of focused on the reality that that we didn't produce this, that, 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 that God is in control of all of this. As you spend time this Thursday on the day of the ascension, 40 days after Easter, focusing on what it means to witness, and to wait. Not one or the other, but both. Is that simple enough for us this morning? Are you going to forget in the festivities of tomorrow what your assignment is for another holiday on Thursday? The tension of the ascension. The first one is, the second one is, Amen. Amen.